living in or under or uh, with a king is foreign, it takes some adjustment, I think. If you've grown up in the States or really in the West, uh, we, we elect our uh, leaders, but not so in a kingdom. Uh, humans love good stories. Uh, one of the great, really, storytellers of the last century, arguably more than that, J.R.R. Tolkien, author of The Lord of the Rings, believed that as humans wrote really fiction, not so much uh, nonfiction, but fictional accounts, he said they were reflecting the image of God and he called it sub-creation or that they became sub-creators. And the thought was, you know, uh, God creates this universe we inhabit and then he, he peoples it, he populates it, and then he creates, of course, God's big epic story is creation and fall and then redemption and all that follows afterwards. And so <clears throat> Tolkien said that's like us being God. And we love stories. We're born to love stories, I think, in part simply because that reflects the nature of God himself. Now, there's lots of uh, ways to begin stories, well-known ones. Um, you guys probably know a few. Uh, it was a dark and stormy night or uh, once upon a time or uh, long ago and far away. But if you're, if you're writing your own story, or if somebody's writing our story for us, probably the, the ending we're looking for is singular. You know what it is? They lived happily ever after. Absolutely. And stories that draw us in usually have some common elements, and there's no, uh, that's not by mistake, it's not happenstance. Uh, there's a book that came out about 15 years ago, a guy had worked on it for over 30 years. He was a literature guru, and he said, really, if you look at the stories, um, fictional accounts, go back as long as you want. He said, really, there's only about seven storylines, and they're all iterations. Any story you read, almost without exception, he said, we'll follow one of these seven basic storylines. We're wired for these narratives. So things like a hero overcomes great obstacles, the dragon is slain, the princess is won, and wrongs are righted, and there's a glorious ending. Those are the kinds of things we love to have included in stories. We're in Psalm 45 this morning, and this song is like the happy conclusion, like the happy end of the beginning, beginning of the end, the, the end of uh, the hero winning and sort of gloriously going into the sunset with his bride. Psalm 45, if you've got your Bibles or your apps, you can turn there now. This song celebrates the glories of God's appointed king, and it calls his new bride up to a life worthy of the exalted position of being wife to that king. The song has two primary sections and then a short conclusion. Verses 1 through 9 describe Israel's king in all his glory. Verses 10 through 15, it describes the bride, but before that, as we'll see, it actually gives her instruction. So before her wedding, it instructs the queen, and then it describes her, and then there's a short conclusion, verses 16 and 17. And Psalm 45 is a little odd, and it's odd for this reason. It's not the psalmist, we'll qualify this, we need to qualify as we go through, but, but most songs, so right, uh, we're oriented heavenward, and we're praising God. But this song is oriented horizontally. This song is written about a human king, but it's included in the Psalms, which are praise to God. And that'll come up in the second stanza, but it's a little unusual. It starts a little unusually, and we'll, we'll qualify that as we go through. 
So the setting is, it's, it's a real wedding of a Jewish king, and that's what the psalmist sees. So that's what he's thinking about. He's thinking about one of David's heirs. This is a Jewish king, and it's his wedding day. And the description, as you'll see, the language is so exalted on praising the king. Some people are guessing because we don't know. Maybe this is Solomon's wedding to the princess of Egypt. We know scripturally he wed one of the daughters of Pharaoh. Was that it? I don't know. It's, it's good if we, if we picture that in our mind because the language is so exalted about this king, who he is and what he's like, that <clears throat> excuse me, maybe everybody other than Solomon falls short. But the psalmist is looking at a real Jewish king on his wedding day. So that's what we see initially. And then it transcends that, as we'll see in the second stanza. We know, though, this song is ultimately about Christ, and therefore ultimately about Christ's bride, the church, because two verses in this are brought up in Hebrews, uh, which we'll look at a little later. Hebrews 1, 8, 9 quote verses 6 and 7. We'll see that in just a bit. So we're going to see something in this psalm that you'll see in other frames of reference in scripture and it's this. So the psalmist is looking horizontally at this king on the wedding day but as he speaks and as you'll see as the second stanza begins or excuse me as verses 6 and 7 begins it's clear that he just transcended anything that could be said of that human king. So the psalmist is looking horizontal, and as he does, though, and as he writes, he's actually speaking beyond the king he can see to Israel's Messiah. And you'll see this in other passages. This is an example, so I'll just give you one. If you read Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, they're speaking of kings of the day, the king of Babylon and the king of Tyre. And you're reading this language... And it sounds like them at first. Then you realize what, what's just been spoken about them isn't probably possible of any human king. And it appears that the, the authors, the prophets are speaking. They start with that king, that human king. And remember, these were, these were kings over the empires of their day in a world ruled by Satan. And it looks like they start with the kings and then they speak right past them to Satan himself, the god of this world or the king of this dark age. Well, that's what you have in a positive sense with this song. You start with the king of Israel in his day, but he looks past him to Israel's Messiah, to the Lord Jesus. That's where we'll go. Ultimately, for Christians today, the call in Psalm 45 is to see the unmatched excellence of Christ as Lord and King, and then to aim to live a life worthy of the exalted position as members of his bride, the church, until that day when we celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19, 19. Alan Ross summarizes or introduces the song this way, One would conclude that although the psalm was composed for a king in a specific time and place, the very language transcended the royal wedding of the historical monarch and found its full meaning in a more excellent person, the promised Messiah. Uh, you'll see from verse 1, 2, this is a... Uh, before we start, you remember in Psalm 42 and 43, you remember how Psalm 42 starts famously, the, the deer's been running, it's panting as a deer pants for water, my soul pants for God, you know, the theme is, I'm worn out, my vitality's drained, I need a drink, and God is the river. I'm, 
I'm parched and I'm lacking vitality and so I've got to get more of God himself. Well, Psalm 45 is the psalmist has been to the river. He's drunk and now he's gushing. He's overflowing because he's met God. He's met with God. So a neat contrast there. So Psalm 45 on the introduction there, that heading you see, to the choir master written to be sung in the temple. According to Lilies, guys, you know in the Psalms there's lots of phrases and words we are not really sure what they mean, and this is one of them. It's thought that it's either a given melody, it might be an instrument, we don't know. It's a maskil, which means it's supposed to instruct us, it's meant to call us up. And it's another one of the sons of Korah, it's a love song because it's of the royal wedding. So we'll start here, verses 1 through 9. The psalmist is looking at the king on his wedding day. And this is what he says. Verse 1 is his introduction. He says, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. His heart is overflowing with what he wants to tell us. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds, or by your strength, by your right hand, accomplish great deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. He's successful in military combat. Verse 6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. The gold from Ophir was uh, understood to be the richest or most valuable form of gold. I want to start at verse 1. As we usually do in these, you know, there's a main point to be had, but there's also references made which I hate to pass up, so I won't. So verse 1 tells us how enthusiastic the psalm writer is to talk about the king on his wedding day. And he says, my heart is overflowing with this theme. And that means he's been thinking about this. Uh, so this doesn't come out on the spur of the moment. So this is, this is in consideration of who and what he's been thinking about. You know, Jesus says in Matthew 12 that the words from our mouth proceed from the overflow of our heart. That's why we say what we say, our words are important. So what's the overflow of our heart? What does that look like for any of us? What are we meditating on? When we speak to others of our heart's joys, what are we talking about? So for any of us. So this guy... And this is pointed, right? Because it is the wedding day and there's a, this is a significant time, right? An event and he's been thinking about it and, he, and now it's here and so he sees the king and he's going to see the queen in a minute and so that's the theme on his heart, certainly of the moment and before as well. But if you said for us at any point in time, 
uh, not necessarily in the moment, because uh, there's diapers to do, right? There's dishes to clean. There's jobs to go to. And so our minds are filled with all kinds of things we've got to be responsible for, right? So if I said to you at any point in time, what's the meditation of your heart? You might say it's getting the dishes done or supper on the table or whatever. We, we, we've got that. But it's really, it's what undergirds everything else. So at a heart level, at a motivational level, what is it that informs everything else I'm doing? And as Christians, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor. That's kind of where everything comes down to, right? Where does love for God through Christ fit in our meditations? If someone pokes us or on the spur of the moment asks us, you know, what is it that informs your life or your thoughts? What is it that's motivating you? Where does Christ fit into those thoughts, those meditations? For the psalmist, this is the first thing. It's preeminent. And so he, is, he has been holding on, and now he lets go because the, he has the opportunity to tell us what he's been thinking about. So the language the psalmist uses of Israel's king is so complimentary and the praise is so unqualified that it sounds like flattery. You guys know back in the day, in the days of the empires of the past, well, really until probably at least the Middle Ages, um, if you, when archaeologists dig up uh, the description of Egypt's history and pharaohs or the other, the other kings, uh, almost without exception, the, the biographers, the guys writing the stories, they're complementary to the king because they have to be, right? Their lives depend on it. So archaeologists know and historians know that they have to weigh what they find written about any given king back in the day because they were, uh, they were intentionally flattering because that made their life better. And it's what the kings were requiring. That's not what you see in Scripture. So, you know, if you take the Old Testament hero of David and you hold him up to the biblical picture, well, God shows us his heroism on one hand and it shows, him, shows us his sin on the other. So even though it sounds like it's flattering, it's not. This is, this is actual. This is historic. This is factual what he's saying. And this is what he says. He says, this king is the most handsome of men physically. He's the epitome of masculine beauty or perfection. If you think, I don't know, GQ or I, I don't know who that is for you or what that looks like. But this guy, it's not just like he might be. No, he truly is remarkably handsome he also speaks gracious words or good words so if you see him he's striking in his physical appearance but if you hear him you realize what he's speaking are gracious words and that means the meditation of his heart is on God's grace he's the words are gracious because he is gracious in and of himself so he's perfect in outward appearance and also in inward character. He possesses splendor and majesty. And again, if you think of Solomon's day as king in Israel, read the descriptions of that un unmatched. You know, the marvel of the age was Jerusalem under Solomon's reign. He's committed to truth, humility, and righteousness. And this is interesting because most of the time, uh, not only in Israel's history with lots of the kings, but certainly around the world, if I've risen to the, the upper echelon of all 
power. It's all about me and what I can get. That's not true of this king. The king is taking the authority and the grandeur and the glory that God has given him, but his, his aim is humility and truth and righteousness. So the authority and the glories God has given him haven't gone to his head. God's priorities have remained his priorities. He's successful in battle against God's enemies. He's clothed gloriously. He lives in splendor. Again, this sure sure sounds like Solomon's courts. His courts are filled with royal guests. People from other nations, royalty from other nations, they want to hang out with him in his court. His description on one hand, excuse me, is objective, but it's also appreciative of all that this king is and represents. And though he is merely mortal, he is just a man, and he would grow old and die, he represents what God's king should be, and the psalmist rejoiced in that. This king looked like the chosen representative of God that he truly was. God's man, God's favor, he represents God and he's doing it well. Let me pause here again. As we look horizontally at others... So the psalmist is seeing the king and really the unique privilege and blessing God had put on his life. As we look horizontally at others, are we free to see how God has blessed others and not us and rejoice in what he's done in and through and for others? Because the psalmist could. He's not the king, but he's looking at the king And he's seen the glory, and he sees God's blessing on him, and he does nothing but rejoice. And you know, for us, if we don't have a sense of God's blessing on our life, if we still feel like we've got to do something to measure up, or we've got to become better known, or somehow better at this, so that we can feel okay about ourselves, we'll never be able to look out and see how God has blessed others and rejoice in it. And that's a form of bondage. But if we know God set his love on us, that he loves us, and that his gifts and the way he's chosen to gift us and call us and use us, that that's fully in line with who he's made us and how we can be best honored in our own lives, how we can best honor God himself. If we get that, then we're free to see how God blesses others and rejoice in it. But if we don't start with that, it's very hard because usually then if I look at what someone else has, I see my own deficit. I I don't bless God for what he's done in the life of other. I look at my own life and I feel like I don't measure up. But if we know God loves us and everything he does in us and for us is the best that that can be, then we're free to enjoy who and what he's made us and also who and what and how he's gifted others as well. And ultimately, by the way, do we see in Christ all that's worthy of praise? Do we see in Christ at the end of the day all that's worthy of praise as he did at this wedding? So the psalmist is thrilled in his appreciation for this king, the one who represented the nation, the one he understood has been chosen by God to lead his people. Then you get to verses 6 and 7, and this is a a pivot again. Just as we saw in Psalm 44, you got to verse 9, you realize, oh, we just shifted gears. Well, that happens in Psalm 45 at verses 6 and 7. So there's a surprising turn here. So he's still speaking to the king, and he says this, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your king is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. 
Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So did you catch that? Verse 6 says, the king is God. So he's, he started looking at a human king, and now he says, the king is God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And then on the other hand, in verse 7, he says that God is the king's God. That God has chosen and anointed the king above others. So you're left with this question, is this a human king or is this king God? Is he a human king or is he God? And we say yes and yes. You knew what was coming, didn't you? We say yes and we say yes. So there are attempts, the, the theologians and commentaries try to make an attempt at saying how this can apply to the human king the psalmist was seeing and they're all really clumsy attempts. They're all very unsatisfying. So it appears that the psalmist, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, here speaks right past the king of the moment to the ultimate king of Israel, the promised Messiah that we know today as the Lord Jesus. In Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 1, the writer is writing to Jewish believers in Jesus that are having a hard time and the hammer's being lowered on them in persecution and so they're they're being tempted to go back to Judaism which under the Roman rule was a protected status and and the Romans are understanding now these people that are called Christians they're they're not true Jews so we don't have to treat them like we've treated the Jews so there's this temptation to go back well Hebrews is written to tell them there's nothing to go back to and it does so in part by telling them how Jesus surpasses, he fulfills and surpasses everything that they saw under Judaism. And under the Old Covenant, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that. And so Hebrews 1 starts with a bang. So when Hebrews 1 begins, the writer says, by the way, Jesus is God's son, the heir of all things, the creator of the world, the radiance of God's glory, the perfect representation of the Father, the one who holds, literally, the universe together. That's Jesus. That's God the Son. That's out of the gate, Hebrews. Well, what follows, especially in chapters 1 and 2, is this comparison. How does Jesus compare to others like angels? Well, he's better than angels because he's not an angel. He's God himself. And that's where Psalm 45 comes in at verses 8 and 9. Verses 8 and 9 in Hebrews 1 quotes verses 6 and 7. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. It's a list of those passages that demonstrate the Old Testament's witness that Jesus is not merely man, but God. When the psalmist wrote of the particular king, God always intended that Israel and we today would see past the temporary ruler to the Lord and King who would surpass all others and would rule and reign forever. This would be a bit like 2 Samuel 7. You remember uh, the Davidic covenant where God, David tells uh, God, it tells Samuel, or excuse me, Nathan the prophet, he says, hey, I want to build God a house. And the prophet initially says, great idea, but then he comes back and says, no, uh, God says, uh, he'll build you a house. You're not going to build his house, but your son will. And you get this promise in 2 Samuel 7, and it's the promise that David will have an heir that will reign forever over a kingdom that reigns forever. And you think initially maybe that's Solomon and then you realize, well, no, 
It's not Solomon. Now, it, it references Solomon. He's the next son. He's the high water mark of the glory of the kings of Israel as far as wealth and the things that we might typically think of. But Solomon grows old, and by the way, he sins horribly, of course, near the end of his life, and he dies. And so you realize, well, Solomon might have been a reflection of who God was talking about, but he's not the fulfillment. The fulfillment would be yet to come, and that would be Solomon and David's heir, the Lord Jesus. Uh, We see something like this language of Psalm 45 of Jesus specifically in Revelation 1 and again in Revelation 19. Turn there if you have your Bibles or your apps. So in in Psalm 45, the psalmist looks at, at the king and he says he is glorious. He's without peer. You get to the, the image of Jesus that John the Apostle sees in Revelation 1, and it's all glorious. So there he's described in verses 12 through 16. He's standing in the midst of the lampstands. We know the lamps are the churches. And so he's in the middle because he's the authority. He stands as the power that oversees everything around him in the middle of the lampstand. He's dressed regally with a long robe. He has a gold sash around his chest. His hair is stark white. Now, for most of us, white hair is a sign of age. That's not the thought here. Unless you think that he's eternal, maybe that could come in. But it's really the thought that everything about him is bright and reflective and glowing. His eyes are flames of fire. His feet glow like bronze. His voice sounds like a deep waterfall. Have you ever, you guys ever been by a big waterfall? It's this roar. Well, that's what his voice is like. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Those are the messengers of the churches. He controls what the churches hear. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. <clears throat> Excuse me, the, the king in Psalm 45 is, is told to strap your sword on your thigh. It says here, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face shines like the sun. So the psalmist looks horizontally and sees this glorious human king John sees Jesus in heaven, and it's nothing but glorious. Like the sun outshining everything else in the sky, Jesus outshines everything and everyone else. That's what we see, Revelation 1. But God's, the king the psalmist sees is also a warrior king. He defeats all God's enemies, and that's what you see of Jesus in Revelation 19. He's described this way in verses 11 through 16. He's a victorious warrior. By the way, this is the second coming. This is Matthew 24. This is Jesus coming back to the earth to put down all uprising, all rebellion, and rule, set up his kingdom on this earth. You know, you guys know Jesus has a kingdom coming on this earth. Doesn't matter how bad it looks now. Doesn't matter what else is going on. The king is coming, and the kingdom will be established on this earth. And that's what Revelation 19 says. So here it's described this way. Heaven's open, and first he says, I see this white horse. You know, not the little donkey Jesus rode in on on Palm Sunday, right? He's on a war horse. It's white. And sitting on it is one who's called faithful and true. In righteousness he judges and makes war. Again, think about that description in Psalm 45. The king is all about righteousness, and he defeats every enemy. His eyes are flaming, on his head are many crowns, his robe is dipped in blood. And guys, he's coming back as a warrior king. He does not come back here as the prince of peace in this coming. He's coming as a warrior king. 
His name is the word of God. Behind him the armies of heaven in pure white linen on white horses are coming too. He's riding at the head of heavenly armies returning to the earth. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. He doesn't need a physical sword. His word itself says it's going to put down all of the, those who are rising up against him at his coming. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations whom he will rule with a rod of iron. That thought again is all-powerful. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So Psalm 45 sees the king in his glory on one hand, sees him as the military victor also. That's exactly what you see of Jesus in Revelation. God's anointed king is God's mighty warrior who will put down all those who oppose his royal rule. It's a good time to pause and ask the question, have we found in Christ the excellencies the psalmist has? We're going to change gears here in just a minute to talk about his bride. Have we seen for ourselves the one that we can set our hearts on without hesitation or limit? No matter how much you look at Christ, the more you look, the better he looks. The more you see, the better he is. The more of him we see or take in or contemplate or meditate on, the fuller we become because there's no end to his goodness or his glory. It just keeps getting better. Have we found in Christ the one who should be praised without end? Again, the psalmist is looking in the moment at a human king. And he says, I can't wait to tell you about this guy. What are the affections of our heart like about Christ? Would anybody else know that Christ is not only our Savior, but our royal king, the one whom we bow to and obey and praise and worship and find worthy of our lives? Does anybody else around us Know that. Do we hold Christ in that way as the psalmist did? And have we seen Christ not only as our sin-bearing Savior, and this is important, right? God calls all men everywhere to repent and believe in Christ, to bow in submission, in faithful submission to Jesus as Savior. We want to do that. That's, that's being transferred out of the kingdom of darkness, Colossians 1, into the kingdom of His Son, the kingdom of light. We want to do that. But do we also see Jesus as our glorious and eternal King, worthy of all glory and praise and obedience? That's going to come up in the next series of verses. How do we see Christ? At verses 10 through 15, talk to and then about the Queen. So we shift gears. So we've seen the King. Think of it as the wedding day. He's regally arrayed and he's waiting for the bride to enter the palace. Now we shift to the, to the uh, queen. So she's a fit match for him. And yet the first thing out of the psalmist's mouth isn't about her glory or her beauty. It's, it's instruction. So this is how he starts. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. <clears throat> Wives, does this sound strange to you? Anybody, any, any wife in here bowed to her husband recently? No takers. So. <laughs> oh, heavens, yes. Um, 
just stories just start coming to mind. You know, we're meeting with someone uh, recently, and and uh, uh, the lovely young lady thinks I'm laughing at her. Kathy, Kathy is your, he's, Mike's not laughing at you. He's thinking of all the things that are flooding into his own mind about our marriage and our past and you name it. Uh, the point would be this, and by the way, you see the same language in 1 Peter 3. That's a little different, isn't it? 1 Peter 3 says the same thing. But here the thought is this. The bride is not marrying just another guy. She's marrying the king of kings. And so it's not just her husband, it's her Lord. He is not just her husband, he is her king. So the instructions right out of the gate are, not only forget what lies behind, but bow to him in understanding who he is. And he's not just another Joe off the street. He is your king. So he's your husband, but he is your king also. And that's why that comes up there. Uh, verse 12, the people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts. The richest of people, that is as his husband, the wealthy people of the world want to curry your favor. They're going to be showing up to you because they want your favor and the king's favor. Verse 13, now it describes her, all glorious is the princess in her chamber. So she's getting dressed for the wedding, and it describes her this way, all glorious. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes, she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. Kind of interesting, Jesus on a white horse, riding into war with the armies of heaven behind him clothed in white. Well, this is the queen coming up to the king with her entourage of virgins following behind her. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. So they're entering in, the, the wedding's taking place, the music's begun, and everybody rises, and the queen, the bride is walking in. So before the, the beauty of the queen is described, she's admonished to forsake all her prior commitments and family ties so that she can give herself fully to the king. And I don't know if that sounds um, harsh or insensitive. Uh, the way this comes across the wedding day, forget everything. Forget everybody else that you knew. Uh, so, Because the king will desire your beauty. And we need to think of it like this. In a variety of times and ways, and certainly especially in marriage, we can't embrace what lies ahead without leaving our past behind. Guys, one of the challenges in life, this is true, not just marriage. Marriage is certainly true, but it's true in all kinds of ways. Uh, you can't fully embrace the next thing in your life if you don't leave the past behind. Uh, Paul says in Philippians, uh, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead. He's got the sense of a race. And whatever I've done in the past, that's past, but I'm pressing forward for a prize. So I'm not looking back. I'm looking forward. Well, that's the thought here. She can't go forward freely and fully the way she should if she doesn't leave her past behind. I want to give you an example of this out of Genesis 24. Sometimes we read these stories and we're really missing what the dramatic element would have been in that person's life. So Genesis 24 is the story of Father Abraham, the patriarch, right, of the faithful. His son Isaac's grown up and he needs a bride. And so Abraham calls his servant and says, hey, we need to get a bride for my son Isaac and no Canaanite woman. So you go back to my families, families of origin, you go back 
to the homeland, and you find a bride for Isaac there. And so the servant goes back, and he's praying, he's trusting God, and he's praying and saying, Lord, you know, would you do such and such so I'll know this is the gal. And so lovely Rebecca comes along, and she says, I'll water your camels. And that was the prayer, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you a drink, and I'll water your camels as well. So the servant goes back to her home and tells them the story. I'm Abraham's servant, your relative, and I came to find a bride. And Rebecca stepped up, and she's it. And the servant puts gold in her nose and gold rings and gold bangles, clothes her in gold, and says, we think she's the bride for Isaac. Isaac is the, the sole heir. Abraham has other children, but the Bible describes him as Abraham's only son. He's his sole heir. Abraham is wealthy, guys, magnificently wealthy by Middle Eastern standards of the day. And Isaac's his son, and he's got all his father's wealth, and he needs a bride, and we think she's it. And so they say, oh, that's great. You know, hey, we'll talk to Rebecca. We'll see how things shake and what she thinks. And, and she says, well, yeah, I'm good for this. But then he says this. He says, uh, my mission is so, uh, I've got to use haste. I can't stick around because they say, well, you hang around here. We'll give Rebecca some time to hang out with us and have all these goodbyes. But the servant says, no, that won't do. He says, it's too important. I got to go back. And she either comes or she stays. And so they say to her, what do you think? Are you willing to go? And go now. And she says, yeah. And then this is, the, this is verse 59 and 60. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. And guys, as far as we know, Rebekah never saw her family again. She left everyone and everything behind. Um, Kathy and I are both grandchildren of uh, immigrants. And Kath's grandparents, maternal grandparents, they immigrated from Poland. And guys, when they left, they never saw those relatives again. When they came to the States, they left everything and everyone behind in order to establish a new life here. And that's exactly what Rebecca did. And that's what the psalmist is telling the new queen to do. That you can't embrace what God has for you in the future if you don't leave your past behind. This applies to all kinds of things. You know, if we're half-hearted, <laughs> years ago, I was in a church that I didn't really want to be in. It's my confession. It's where I didn't want to land. And we're there, and I'm hanging out, and I'm double-minded. And uh, a guy told me, he said, Mike, you need to get in or get out. And I thought, that's exactly what I needed to hear. So I got in, and it was good. So getting in meant, okay, I'm not sure what the future holds, but it's here for now, and I'm going to leave what I knew and what I was doing, and I'm going to invest. So that's what the psalmist is telling her, honey, to be this guy's wife and to fulfill this royal role, you can't do it if you're hanging on to your past life, and neither can we. And you know, when you come to faith in Christ, we don't get this immediately, right? <laughs> Did you know that your old life ended the day you came to faith in Christ? Who you were, what you were. We don't feel that in the moment, do we? 
It's a slow growing realization, isn't it? But all that we were has been eclipsed by who God has now made us and what his call on our life is. You know, it's the, uh, the B.C. and the A. before Christ and after Christ. Everything's different. And guys, it's this huge call on Christians, is it not? Matter of fact, we heard this in Sunday school. If you're going to follow Christ, what must you do? You must take up your cross, which is the symbol of death, and follow him. And if you don't take up your cross, you can't follow Christ. If you don't say goodbye to all that you were, all that you loved, this doesn't mean rejecting people, right? It means I've got a new call and I can't embrace anything that keeps me from fulfilling that new call. Rebecca couldn't fulfill her calling if she didn't leave and leave all. And we can't fulfill ours if we don't do the same thing. Now, the church is the bride of Christ. So we're saying in Psalm 45, I start looking horizontally at the Jewish king. And then I say, oh, and by the way, that king ultimately is introducing me to Jesus. Well, guys, ultimately that queen is not just that queen. That queen is introducing us to the bride of Christ. When we come to Christ in faith, we're renouncing our previous life in order to become who the Lord means us to become and do the things he means us to do. Like a man and a woman uniting in marriage, we leave behind our old selves and lives in order to fully enter into our new life and role. There's no relationship on earth that requires more leaving old things behind to cling to the new than marriage does. And there's no relationship on earth or in heaven that's more compelling in its call to leave old things behind in order to become our new selves than our union with Christ. It's total. The call is total. 2 Corinthians 5 says, um, Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come regarding our faith and our translation from death to life. Listen to this from Matthew 10. By the way... Um, you know, in Scripture, it's appropriate for a husband to be jealous of his wife and a wife to be jealous of her husband, right? Jealousy in this is almost always used as a negative. It's not that way in the Scripture. So I should be jealous for my wife. I should have this unique claim on my wife that nobody else has. That's biblical. That's appropriate. Well, the Lord has that for us, and we're meant to have that for Him. So think of, I'm part of the bride of Christ. And guys, that doesn't mean that we're feminine, does it? But it means we're in this relationship with Christ also, uniquely bound to Him. Uh, listen to this from Matthew 10. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. If I don't leave the past, I can't embrace Christ in the future. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So Christ, as husband, if you will, or as groom, his call on us is all-inclusive. It's total, with no exceptions. There's nothing that we say, well, this is mine from before. You guys, I don't know if anyone here, you know, one of the things in marriage you say, uh, money shouldn't divide you. You know, you generally tell people, don't have separate bank accounts. Why? Well, because you're one. You don't want anything in your life that divides you, tends to divide you. Is there anything that I'm holding on to that keeps me from Christ singularly? 
It's all-inclusive. And guys, anything short of that, by the way, is some form of idolatry. Remember, idolatry is something that comes between God and me. Something that displaces the commitment, the affection that I'm meant to have for God, and I'm putting it on someone or something else. That's idolatry by definition. Is there anything keeping us from full-hearted leaving and cleaving? And that's true in our own marriages on earth, and it's certainly true in our relationship with Christ. Our future as members of the bride of Christ is to rule and reign with King Jesus forever. In bowing to Christ as King and Lord and forsaking all, we in fact possess all. What did the queen lose? She gained. She gained the kingdom. She gains the king and all his wealth and all his glory and all his splendor becomes hers. Verses 13 through 15, the queen's beauty, like the king, the queen is physically glorious and she's also richly clothed in multicolored gowns interwoven with gold. She and her maidens will join the king at the wedding with great joy and gladness. You see elements of that in uh, Rebecca's story as well. Uh, verse 13, all glorious is the princess in her chamber is not only a description of the queen that the psalmist saw, but of the bride of Christ as well. All that we should be, nothing that we shouldn't be. Guys, sometimes what happens is um, our sins, our failures, um, make us feel like uh, we're not what we are in Christ. That is, I see my sin, I see my failure. And, I, and you say, Mike, the, the bride of Christ is all glory. And it's like, well, that's true. That's, and that's Christ doing. It's his work in us. And we want to be quick to acknowledge. And we fall short of that description and that mark regularly. So we confess that and we get back up and we go on again. But the bride of Christ will be all glorious, nothing lacking at all. It's said this way in Ephesians 5. Christ sanctifies us through His Word. And guys, this is John 17. Jesus' prayer, sanctify them in the truth. Set them apart, make them holy for you. Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. And when Ephesians tells us how Jesus sanctifies His bride, the church, it says, through His Word. So that we can come to Him in splendor, no spot or wrinkle, but all glorious. We will be like the bride the psalmist saw. We will be described aptly as all glorious. <clears throat> Excuse me. In light of who we are in Christ right now and what we will be like in the future, we're called to live now in light of our glorious new calling. Oh, sorry, I'm running out of time, running along. Imagine that. Walk worthy. Uh, Ephesians 4 and Colossians 1, those are passages you can look up later. But because we're saved, because we have Christ and Christ has us, we're, because we're members of his bride, then he says, now walk worthy of that high calling you have. That's what the psalmist was telling the queen to do as well. I want to wind down quickly, verses 16 and 17. The psalmist turns from the queen back to the king and says, in place of your fathers, the kings that came before you shall be your sons. You'll make them princes in all the earth. I'll cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. So guys, what happened to that king the psalmist was looking at? He grew old. He got wrinkles, gray hair, and he died. By the way, what was the name of that king? We don't know. So who is this ultimately speaking about? <laughs> Not that king. Speaking about Christ specifically. 
Jesus is the eternal glorious King who reigns forever. He will live happily ever after in a kingdom that has no end with His glorious bride at His side, riches and joy and pleasures without measure and without end. That's the end of Jesus' story. If you're a Christian, that's the end of your story too. So you close out this phase of time and you enter eternity in this new glorious role that goes on and never ends. There's no story, no epic, no heroic tale greater than this. Jesus has conquered sin, death, and hell to win his bride, and their future together is glorious. Uh, two, two questions just to close. So the, the only question really that matters at the end of the day is, am I Christ's? And is he mine? Have I trusted Christ and Christ alone to save me? If I haven't, I'm not a member of his bride. And the road I'm on is to hell, not heaven. It's on to judgment and wrath not glory and honor. Trust Christ. Christ alone. Christ alone is our Savior. And if we've trusted Christ, are we aspiring nobly? We all know we sin. We all know we blow up. That's a given. But are we aspiring to live worthy of the call we have as members of the glorious bride of Christ? That's the question. So is Christ our Savior? Repent and believe. If He is our Savior, are we aspiring to be all glorious like the Queen we see in Psalm 45? Well, rise if you would. We want to read from Revelation 22, thinking of the wedding to come and the appearing of Jesus. And the worship team will take it from there. Read, read with me, please. I, Jesus, have sent my angel. Do you guys not have it? I felt very lonely there for a minute. <laughs> I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.